Well, good morning. It's again my uh, privilege to be invited back uh, to Christ Community Church, and every time I come here, uh, there's more people that don't know me, <laughs> and uh, that's an encouraging thing just to see how uh, God is moving and how God is bringing people, and you're just uh, so thankful to have uh, this church here, and I know our church up in Doaktown, um, we continually pray for you guys uh, when our elders meet on Saturdays and through our prayer meetings, and it's just uh, so exciting for you know, even the people from our church, when we come and visit, it just feels like home. And uh, so it's a privilege for me to be here this morning, and I want to invite you to take your Bible, if you've brought it with you, and to go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and the title of my sermon this morning is just simply uh, the compassion of Jesus. And that's something that's important, because so often when we read the Bible, we can come across different passages and we can learn so many different truths and realities about who God is and who Christ is. But one that rings true this morning from this passage is that Christ's heart is full of compassion for sinners. Or to put it in this way, that Christ's heart is full of compassion for you. And so when we get to John 8... This passage kind of gives us two different themes, and we have to deal with two different realities, and we'll read it in a moment. But one thing that becomes apparently clear as you read the Gospels, as you read um, the Word of God, that Jesus, in His life and in His ministry, is often confronted with conflict, isn't He? Just think for a moment, when He first read the scroll in the temple, it says that they sought to kill Him. And then earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 5, he heals a man on the Sabbath. They seek to throw him from a cliff. And then what happens in John 8 is he's under attack again from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And their whole point and their whole purpose is to discredit him where it can go wrong and it can go wrong fast. But there is encouragement for us this morning because Jesus never once... And the entirety of his life and in the entirety of his ministry ever compromised who he was. In his infinite wisdom, he always responded correctly and appropriately. So those, that's, those are the two themes this morning. The first one is that Jesus is vindicated in spite of the trap of the Pharisees. And the second theme is that Jesus redeems sinners. And so we'll read our passage together and ask the Lord to uh, help us understand his word. Starting in John chapter 8, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. And when they had kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin... Let him throw the first stone at her. And again he stooped and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away 
one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus then straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Notice her answer. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity to come and to gather in your house. Lord, to hear from your word and to meet with you. And God, I ask that you would be gracious towards us this morning, that we would know that your word is true, that, that Christ's heart really is full of compassion towards the one in need of his grace, and that's all of us. So Lord, for all of the people who are here, who are right with you this morning, I pray that this would encourage our hearts, that we would once again be reminded of how good you are to us in the gospel. But Lord, also for anyone who's here this morning, outside of Christ, outside of redemption, that they would see that Jesus has done everything for them. And not only that they would see it, but they would believe. And that you would do a work of salvation here this morning for your name's sake and for our good, and also a work for your own people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the passage we read with John 8, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is publicly going around and he's teaching and he's preaching. He's performing miracles. He's really honestly fulfilling the reason why he came. And the reason why he came was to seek and to save the lost. We know in Luke 4 it says that he came um, to give sight to the blind, to set the captives free. And as Jesus is doing this, we find him in John 8, we find him at the Mount of Olives. And it seems like the details in the beginning really aren't all that big. It seems like they're not all that important. But what you find is that Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives in the morning, and the purpose is to teach a group of people that have been listening to him. And honestly, that was something that was happening. As Jesus was teaching, he was going from place to place. There was crowds. He was creating a bit of a stir, so to speak, religiously. And when he gets to the temple, you can imagine that Jesus' expectation is to come in and to teach the group of people who has been so intently listening to him. But what he finds is not what he would have expected. He walks into the temple, and not only does he find the group that he's supposed to be teaching, he also finds the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this isn't one of those meetings where they've come to say hello. It's not a friendly meeting. There's nothing about this that, you know, seems like it's supposed to be the way it is. Jesus walks in, he sees them, and they have somebody with her. They have a woman who has been caught in adultery, and she's standing before the group. Her sin, everybody knows it. Her deed, it's been exposed. And the Pharisees are using her for the purpose of trapping Jesus. Doesn't seem very compassionate on the Pharisee side, does it? Using her almost to pinhole Jesus. And you might wonder, well, what is the trap and really what is this whole setup all about? But one thing, like I said, is Jesus faced conflict often. And one of the purposes of the conflict that he got from people was so that people would discredit him, so that those who would listen to him would not really believe who he said he is. There was a purpose of 
casting doubt upon his character, upon his mission. And what they want to do with this woman is they want to test Jesus in front of everybody to try to discredit him. You might say, well, how does that work? How does that really make sense? Because it almost seems a bit cut and dry, right? The conversation goes like this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they go before Jesus in the group, and they say, look, this woman, she's been caught in adultery. She's guilty. Everybody knows it. The law of Moses says that she's to be put to death. And then their question to Jesus is the real kicker. They say, what do you say? They want to know if Jesus is really going to execute justice rightly as the law of Moses demands. Because you might have to look back for a moment and remember Jesus' claims. The law of Moses, initially in the covenant, came from God, right? He said that he is the son of man who came from the Father. If there's something that doesn't line up, look, you don't have to believe him for who he is. And here's the trap. Because the Pharisees, and people sometimes don't see this, but they're actually trying to twist the law to their own advantage. I want you to turn back to Leviticus chapter 20 for a moment with me. And let's look at what the law of Moses says. We know what it says in Exodus 20, to not commit adultery. But in Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, notice this, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Notice that, both of them. Then we flip ahead to, uh, flip ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 22. And it gets reiterated again. Deuteronomy 22, verses 23, sorry, 22 to 24. Give everyone a moment to turn there. Once again, this is the Old Testament law. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman, notice this, must die. You must purge evil from the land. And if you read the end of verse 24, it even speaks about the use of stoning. That's what this woman's up against. If she's guilty, and everybody knows she is, in the mind of the Pharisee and the teacher of the law, it would only be right for Jesus to say, go ahead, stone her, she deserves it. But here is the trap. If they look at Jesus and ask this question, and he says, you know what? You guys are right. That's what should happen. And then Jesus gives them the go-ahead to go and stone her. What are they going to say? They're going to say, well, look, actually, you should have known that the law of Moses said that they were both supposed to die. You only killed her. What about him? You don't rule justly. You aren't who you said you are. You're not right. You're not just. You're not the son of God who came from heaven. You're just a sham. And almost to make this look public so that people wouldn't believe him. But then on the other side, imagine for a moment Jesus just says that she can go. And in their minds, the minds of the Pharisees, they think that Jesus didn't really deal with anything. They're going to say, well, look, he doesn't uphold the law with his justice. Can you really trust a man like that? And one thing that I always think of when I see this trap is... I just think about how wise Jesus is in this one. Because I don't know about you guys, but 
I, uh, I'm not trying to make myself look like a nerd or anything like that, but I am a big fan of Star Wars. And in the original trilogy, which is from like 77 to 83, I was born in 93, so before I was even born, um, The Return of the Jedi came out, and there's one scene, or I guess a few cutscenes near the end of the movie, where the Rebel fleet is coming close to what's called the Death Star. And the whole plan is that this Death Star is made by the evil guys, and they have to destroy it so the planets won't get wiped out. And when they get to that Death Star, the plan is that the shield is supposed to be down so that the ships can go in and attack this, like, mega weapon. And when they get there, the shield's up, there's nothing they can do to go in on their plan of attack, and then not only that, as all of these ships rendezvous in, all of the Imperial ships come in and they just start shooting like mass amounts of rebel ships. Never watch the movie, you gotta watch it. And, <laughs> and what happens is there's this one amphibian looking creature, his name's Admiral Akbar, and he's in the bridge of his ship, it's a big cruiser, and he only really says one line of any value in that scene, and it's, it's a trap. And then all the ships go away, and like I said, like they just take a massive loss of ships. But see, Jesus, he has an all-wise, an all-wise understanding of the situation. So he sniffs the trap out before there's any damage at all. Because when we see his response, it's most likely not the response that we expect, is it? And yet it's a smart response. Jesus, in this situation, before the group that he's teaching, before the Pharisees, before the teachers of the law, and before the woman, he doesn't say anything, does he? It's a good lesson for us when we're confronted with conflict to be slow to speak, to weigh what we're going to do in that situation, to think about what is right and how we respond. And in Jesus not saying anything, he does something that strikes us all as a little bit odd. It says in our passage that he bends over and he begins to write in the ground with his finger. And I remember reading that and just thinking like, what is going on here? Like this doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I actually didn't realize the significance of this until I was reading Augustine. And some of you may be aware of who he is. But he brought out the significance in such a powerful way. He said, you have to think back to when the first time something was written with the finger of deity. And we all know what that is. It's back in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses on the tablets of stone. So when Jesus bends over and he begins to write with his finger, he's trying to show the Pharisees and the teachers of the law something, isn't he? He's trying to point them to a reality about himself. But they don't pick up on it, do they? See, Jesus is, in fact, God eternal. He is God in the flesh. And Augustine pointed this out. He said, when God the Father wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone at Mount Sinai, where was Christ? He was there. He's the eternal God. And not only that, Jesus, it says in the Bible, is the creator of the universe. So this points us to something. That not only is Jesus 
right because He is God. And not only is He going to do what's right according to the law, because the law was actually given by God the Father, but Jesus has come for the purpose of fulfilling the law and not abolishing it. So first of all, He won't do anything in opposition to it. But second of all, since He is the creator of this universe, the law is subjective to Him. And the Pharisees, they don't completely understand who they're dealing with, do they? But what happens is Jesus then answers them. Because even though they don't pick up on the fact that Jesus really is who He says He is, and the fact they're trying to disprove it, they continue to press Him. They want an answer. In their mind, they're thinking, this is pretty clear-cut, Jesus. Like, just say something. Either we stone her or we don't. Over. And then when Jesus straightens up, He speaks. And the words that He speaks absolutely shell-shock them. They're not expecting it. He looks at the whole crowd and He says, the one without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. Do you notice what Jesus does there? He takes the onus off of Him and He puts it back on to them. Because the whole point of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is to expose her sin to discredit Jesus. But do you know what Jesus does in that moment? He doesn't just have everybody looking at her sin, but He exposes everybody's. He exposes everybody's. Because when Jesus says that, nobody picks up a stone. But just imagine the woman here for a moment. She's unsure about her situation. You can imagine her standing before the group of people. You can imagine that she has a fearful anticipation that she's going to get what she deserves. She's standing there wondering, well, Jesus just said if somebody doesn't have sin, they can throw that first stone at me. I wonder who that first person is that's going to walk up to that pile, pick up that rock, and hurl it at me. Who's going to be the first one? But to her amazement, nobody. She stands there and waits, and the crowd just simply breaks up. Can't you sense in this moment the authority of Christ's words? But not only the authority of Christ's words, but the wisdom of Christ. And how when He responds, it's not about Him trying to answer them, but He brings it back to the matter of the heart. And then everybody sees something about themselves. That they in one moment are so ready to execute justice, and then in the next moment they realize that they're not worthy to be the judge. It's powerful. Because when you see... Christ in this way, it is truly a reflection of who He is versus who we are. And I want to make an application here, and it's one that I've thought of many times because it's one that I've been guilty of before. And it's one that the Lord's worked in my own life on. But we look at this story of casting stones upon this woman because of her sin, and yet the reality is is even though there aren't physical stones cast, 
there are moral stones that are cast all the time. And sometimes even in the church, and even with people who know better, myself included. And I just get thinking sometimes about how I respond in certain situations. Because there are times when you come across situations where there are people, you know there's something that's been wrong, you know there's something where they've been stumbling, they've been failing. And look, I'm not saying that we don't tell somebody and warn somebody about the, their condition and don't talk about what's wrong and don't talk about sin. But if we just leave it at that and almost address it in a self-righteous way, because so often that can creep up in us, then we're actually just simply casting moral stones. But when you go to somebody and you have a heart to restore them and a heart to care for them and not only leave it at their sin but also point them to Christ, that's our response and that's what it needs to be. And I remember listening to a sermon by a pastor in Kentucky and his name is Thomas Schreiner and he's uh, definitely a very, very sound Bible teacher and he was actually talking about this in one of his sermons. I listened to it like back in 2011, quite a while ago. And he said the reality of casting moral stones, and this is something that he said kept him awake at nights, was that all that God would need to show him that he can be hypocritical in this is that if he had a tape recorder around his neck and every moral judgment he cast on somebody else in a self-righteous way, God would just hit the play button and those same ones could be said of us. Makes us take a step back for a moment, doesn't it? Because when we look at what Jesus says about if you don't have sin, cast that first stone, not, not only could they not cast a stone at her, but we can't cast the moral judgment stones as if we're someone greater. We just go to people in grace and with the gospel. Now, with that application... I do want to point us to the next reality of our text with Jesus and the woman. Because this is actually quite amazing. After Jesus sets this straight, after he deals with this conflict, he comes through not doing anything wrong. Not only that, he comes through doing what's right. He looks at the woman. There's nobody else here. And they have a short but powerful conversation, don't they? Because Jesus, at this point, is speaking to her, and in her mind, she's still probably wondering, okay, well, the crowd left, but I still don't know what Jesus is going to do with me. And in that short conversation, Jesus just asked her a simple question. Who here has condemned you? Who here has condemned you? And her answer of no one you have to believe, comes with a massive level of relief. Because in one moment, she stood at death's door awaiting the judgment for her sin of adultery. And in the next moment, she is free to go at the authority of Christ's word. Don't you see that it's almost like from one extreme to the next? That's amazing. One moment doomed and the next forgiven that is the power of christ to redeem and when they had their conversation jesus makes it so clear he set her free now go and sin no more and you have to believe 
that in that moment, that would have been her heart's desire, knowing that all that Jesus did for her, that he set her free when she didn't deserve to go free, that Jesus showed her grace upon grace upon grace, and in doing so, she has a desire to give her life to him and to truly follow Jesus. You see, that's what Jesus does when he forgives this woman. He completely sets her free and she gives her life to him. And this is such an amazing picture because it shows us not only is Jesus vindicated in who he is, like I talked about, but that Jesus also has the purpose of redeeming sinners. He has come for the purpose of restoring what is wrong. He has come for the purpose of setting those free who are in bondage. He has come for the purpose of setting people free from their sins when really what they deserve is the judgment for their sins. And what better of a picture do we get than this? What better of a picture do we get? Because Jesus is in the same mode today. And this is where this really applies to us. Because we can look at all of these details that I've talked about. And what that does is that fills our mind with the passage and with what's going on. But here when we look at this theme, this is where we see the heart of God. And we need both. Because if all we do is just have our mind filled with Christ and what he does, but we don't have our heart ministered to and spoken to, it will have no effect on our life. And not only that, it does no good for the person to just understand a ton of things and yet not actually be redeemed by the goodness of Christ in the gospel. So I want to flesh out this side of forgiveness because I want to tell you something this morning. Jesus' heart towards you isn't any different than his heart towards this woman. He doesn't look at your past. He doesn't look at your failures. He doesn't look at your sins and say, look, you made your bed, you can sleep in it. That's your grave, go to it. He's not cold-hearted. He's warm-hearted. And he's expressed it in the gospel. So we have to know this. And the way that we know this is by first understanding that the picture of the woman here is actually a picture of you and me. So I want to give us a few comparisons so that we not just look at this story from her perspective and forget about ourselves in the equation, but how Christ has really made the same offer to you this morning as he gives to the woman. The first one is that this woman stood condemned by the law for her adultery, just like you and I stand condemned before the law for our sin. And so often people will look at other people's sins and they'll say, well, I didn't do that. I'm not guilty of that one. People will say, well, that's what they did, but, you know, I'm a pretty good person. And honestly, when you count up the fullness of the law, you know, nobody can honestly say that. Yes, this woman's sin in this story was adultery. People will say, well, I didn't fall in that way. Well, let's just say, for example, that is true, even though it isn't. You know, the law of God speaks to so many more areas of life about not lying and not stealing and not bearing false witness, not murdering, which Jesus says is anger in the heart. And then what James says 
is that if you offend it in one point, you're guilty of it all. What he basically means is that if you offend it in one point, what that means is that alone is enough to have you stand as guilty. To be excluded from glory. To be outside the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God in and through Jesus Christ. We're no different than her. The next one is that she was at the mercy of a judge, just like you and I will be at the mercy of a judge. We all know that day that's coming. When Jesus Christ returns to the earth to judge the living and the dead, and we will all stand before him, and our soul will have a uh, judgment pronounced on it, innocent or guilty, just like her. The next one is that her guilt for her sin was real, just as yours is. And that's why there is that fearful expectation of, of judgment, because you know that your sin demands it. It's getting heavy with her. The next one is that there is a fear of expected judgment in the same way the Bible says that there should be a fearful expectation for judgment for our own sins. There's so many verses in the Bible that point us to this. I think of Amos, where it says to prepare to meet your God. I think of Hebrews, where it says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Look, if someone isn't ready to stand before him, it's not a nonchalant, I'll just deal with it when I get time. It's you have to be ready to meet your God. You have to know if you stand right or if you stand outside of his kingdom. Because eternity is on the line. The last comparison, and I really want to make sure that we're all aware of this one, is her ability to pardon and to free herself from her sin is non-existent, just like your ability to save yourself and free yourself from your sin is non-existent. God doesn't cut deals. God doesn't look at our situations and say, oh, well, if you do enough of this, if you do enough of that, maybe if you, uh, you know, don't go back into what you went into before, maybe if you go to church enough, maybe if you're nicer to people at work, like none of that stuff on the outside matters. Because in all honesty, the only person who could ever save us from our sins, the only person that could ever do something for us did it. Because he knew that we were utterly helpless in and of ourselves. Isn't that what the Bible says in Romans 5, 6? That while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. What does ungodly mean? That Christ died for sinners. Nothing we could do, and yet Jesus did it for us. But to really just hammer Jesus' point home, we have one way that Jesus shows sin before we flesh out the gospel. And this is a big one. Because when you think about the sinfulness of man, when you think about the fact that people know they're not right, the response from a lot of people is to just put on a set of blinders. To look one direction. To forget about it. To shut everything else out that would cause their conscience to know that they need to be right with God and to just continue on as if everything's normal. 
That is the response of many people. And one of the ways that that shows itself is by saying, I'm not like that person. But Jesus levels the playing field. And it just makes me think of uh, one person in particular, and Corey would know him, and uh, also Rob from our church. We witnessed to him at camp like numerous times. And I remember one day we were on the swing set, and uh, we were talking to this kid, and just like you could not convince him that he was a sinner. I'm a good person. I've never done any of this stuff. Then you'd, you'd take him through the law. You'd ask him different questions. And then what got kind of funny, not funny, but just like funny in the sense of you, I didn't expect it at the time. Once he was convinced that he was a sinner, he said, oh, well, sin is just made up so that religions can convince people to join them. And I remember thinking like, man, this guy's got an answer for everything. And, uh, but what ended up happening was just like every excuse to keep those blinders on so he wasn't accountable before God, he had it. And I just remember like, you know, him coming even a few summers later and the closest he ever got was he did go to a youth rally at a church throughout the year, but he's still not converted and he's still convincing himself that this whole reality of him not being right isn't true. And one of the things that was always hidden behind was, I'm not like that guy. And Jesus even answers this. We all know the verse in Romans 3.23 where it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not for some, but for all have sinned. And it was actually through studying Romans 3 that my mind went to John 8 and I ended up scratching the sermon on paper. Because when I got thinking about Romans 3.23 where it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, my mind automatically went to the one without sin cast the first stone. And here's what's significant about this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law at this point, they would have even at times said that they themselves were righteous according to the law. Paul even mentions that in Philippians, that back when he was a Pharisee, he would have claimed to be righteous according to the law. <laughs> but they didn't seem very righteous when Jesus put the onus on them. Because Jesus, like I said, not only saw that the woman's sin was exposed, but he exposed everybody's. And sometimes people will say this to me. They'll say, I'm a good person. And I've actually talked to a few people and I've asked them this question. Well, when Jesus says, if you're without sin, throw the first stone and not even the Pharisees threw one, would you really say that you're better than them? Would you really say that you're more righteous than probably the most outwardly righteous people in Jesus' day? Look, if Jesus in his own day didn't have a single person lift a stone against this woman, it wouldn't be any different in our day. We all know what the Bible says, that there is nothing new under the sun. That nothing changes. That if Jesus was here in this moment and said the same thing, the woman would be standing there without a single stone lifted at her. The only way that you can bring yourself to say that you're better than them and not in need of God's grace is if you don't know your own soul and your heart is full of pride. That's the only way. Which leads us to once again realize that Jesus here levels the playing field. 
Nobody's righteous, not even one. Everybody's in need of God's grace. And once that is hammered home by Christ in this instance, then we flesh out the good news of the gospel. Because, you know, it wouldn't do any good to just hammer this home and leave you there. We have to see the remedy that's in Christ. We see two things. That in the gospel, in what Jesus did with this woman, is he offered forgiveness and he offered new life. He offers forgiveness. And here's what's so amazing. In spite of her sin, in spite of my sin, in spite of your sin, Jesus offers, instead of death, like it says in Leviticus, he offers life. Instead of offering death, he offers life. We all know that verse, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Though our sin deserves death, Jesus offers a new start. That is the good news of the gospel. That you can start over. That you can look at the seriousness of your situation. You can look at how far you've gone. You can look at how far you think you may or may not have messed up. You can look at every single aspect of your life that points you to the fact that you're in, the need of, that you're in need of the grace of God. And guess what? Grace is being offered through Jesus Christ. That is the hope that you and I have this morning. Because if that's not true, if that offer from Jesus to start over in the gospel isn't on the table, then like you and I are up crick without a paddle and we're heading for a waterfall fast. That's the only hope that you have in this life, but also in the next. And that's why I'm so thankful this morning that this is true. That you can know that Jesus Christ can give you forgiveness from all that you've done. And sometimes you can ask this question. Well, how is it possible that Jesus let this woman go free? How is it possible that if she was really guilty, that Jesus came up to her and said, go and sin no more, and did not cause her to be judged for her adultery? And this is where the good news gets good. Because Jesus knows something about himself in this instance. Remember what it says in John 129? That he is the lamb who will take away the sin of the world? Well, Jesus is that lamb. And here's how it goes. Think about it in legal terms for a moment. Even though there was not a stone thrown on that day in the temple at the woman, there is another day when there was a stone thrown, isn't there? Think about it like this. God, the lawmaker, the one who is righteous and unjust in all that he is and all that he does, he's the one that picks up the stone because he's the only one who's able to. And as he picks up that stone, you're expecting it to land in a certain place. You're expecting it to land on the lawbreaker. That's you and that's me. But instead of that stone hitting and killing the lawbreaker, that stone lands on the law keeper, who is Jesus Christ. It's like he stepped right out in front and took the bullet for you. 
Jesus, on the cross, in your place, took the stone that you deserved. And he bore every bit of force and weight and pain and judgment that it brought. And he did it so that you could be set free. Knowing that he would do this, he sets the woman free. And knowing that he has done this, he can set you free this morning. He's the one who has done the work. He stood in your place. And he has done something for you that you could never do for yourself. And do you want to know what this does for us? It causes us to think about the gospel in a very important way. It causes us to think about our soul and our eternity in a very important way. The message of grace and the message of salvation has got nothing to do at all with you and your performance or anything. It's got everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done for you. Look, Jesus has paid it all. Every single drop, every single sin, every single thing that you've ever done, Jesus bore it on his own shoulders and paid for it till the very end. That's the hope that we have. It's the most amazing message that there is. And it's because of this that just like Jesus can look at this woman and he can say to her, I don't condemn you. Think about that word, those words in Romans 8, 1 for the believer. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can look at that verse and based on what Jesus has done for you, if you're relying and trusting upon him, you can hold on to that with confidence this morning. With confidence that you are not condemned but that you are forgiven. But then on the other hand, maybe you can't hold on to that with confidence. Because even though you know all of those things, at the same time, you still are not trusting and relying in Christ. But look, His purpose, and the very reason He took that stone for you, is so that you would not be condemned. Isn't that what it says in John chapter 3? We all know verse 16. But verse 17 says this, that He came not to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him don't you see the heart of Christ towards you this morning whether it's in the gospel and in saving you or whether if it's with you right now and you know you don't belong to him Jesus is full of compassion for you his desire is that you would not be condemned but that you would be saved now when we think about the forgiveness that he offers, that comes through the cross and through the work of Christ. But then the second thing that Jesus really irons out for the woman and also for us is not only is there a forgiveness of sins, but when Christ comes and does a work of salvation, he makes you a new creation. He offers new life. Like I said, he offers you a chance to start over to live a life that is glorifying and pleasing to Him. Because in all honesty, the forgiveness of sins is the first part of it, but then living and surrendering your life to Him is the second part of it. Because isn't that what Jesus preached? Sometimes our view of the gospel can be deficient. Sometimes we can just only emphasize the forgiveness of sins 
and sometimes forget to leave out the fact that the gospel also does change our life. Jesus preached a message of not sign a card or agree with the right things. He preached a message of self-denial. And he preached a message of bearing your cross and following after him. And that's exactly what this woman does. She follows Jesus. Doesn't he give her a command in her forgiveness? This is what the new life looks like. Go and sin no more. Or the translation I'm reading this morning, leave your life of sin. That's because there is a change from living for your sin, the very thing that caused you to be condemned in the first place, to living for Christ. And that is through the Holy Spirit. When Jesus comes, you're forgiven. The Bible says that you are created a new creation and that the Holy Spirit actually gives you a new heart that hates sin and loves righteousness. And that's why this command to go and sin no more, this is a command that's a delight. Can you imagine for a moment if, you know, Jesus sets this woman free? Like I said, at one moment she stood at death's door and at the next she's free and Jesus just says to her, oh, that's so awesome, just go, go do whatever you want. It's not how that works. She, she would actually be so full of gratitude towards Christ for saving her that her desire would be to give her life to Jesus. It's incredibly important that we get this because sometimes we forget it. We think that, you know, the gospel is just all about forgiveness and not about following. And then the other thing is sometimes we put the cart before the horse. Sometimes we know that we need to be forgiven for sins, but sometimes there's still this um, ideology that we have that we have to save ourselves, that we kind of have this self-salvation project on the go. And we think that, you know, if we just follow enough, then we're going to get forgiven. But this is the easiest way I can say it. The result of the gospel in your life, this is what it creates. It doesn't create you following Jesus to get forgiven, but being forgiven will get you following Jesus. I'll say it one more time. Following Jesus in and of itself doesn't get you forgiven, but being forgiven gets you following Jesus. There is a reality that you will follow Christ as if he has forgiven you and you have received a new heart and you are a new creation. I want to point you to the next verse in John chapter 8. It's a part of a different section, but it's so helpful in understanding this. Notice what Jesus says, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. And notice this, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Following, not, following Jesus and not living in darkness, but following Jesus and having the light of life. That's the result of the forgiveness of sins in Christ. So encouraging, knowing that our whole Christian life, our whole purpose and our whole motivation in following Jesus isn't so that he somehow gives us something back in return. Look, he's given us everything, and therefore we give our life to him. Isn't that what it says in Romans 8.32? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? How could we ever look at God and think that we have to earn something from him? 
He's given everything in Christ. When I think of John 8, and when I think of that reality, I just am so reminded of the grace of God. Because if he hadn't have done that work through his son Jesus Christ, and if he hadn't have caused his spirit to break me of my sin so that I would receive Christ and that I would turn and believe, I would just think that all of this is crazy. I would think that none of this has got any bearing on my life at all. But one of the things that God in his kindness and his graciousness does is he reveals to us the truth of his word. And this morning you could be sitting here and you could be thinking, you know, a lot of that stuff kind of sounds right, sounds good, but never look at it just merely in that way. When you think about the Word of God, and when you think about the Gospel, when you think about what Christ has done, one thing I want to urge you to do is to just take account of your own heart and your own life. Take account of where you're at. Because in all honesty, there are so many things that we can think to ourselves that would cause us to think that we're okay and yet completely miss out on the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And sometimes one of the dangerous things is not having a whole lot that we, that we essentially see wrong with our life. I remember a guy telling me that one time, are you really telling me that I need to start over? You know, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I think i got a lot of things going for me. And the reality is this. There are tons of ways from the world's perspective where things look like they're good, but apart from Christ, every bit of it is done for the glory of man and not the glory of God. And one of the responses of this woman is that she gave her life to Christ to glorify him. That's why we need the restart button. That's why we need the start over button, so to speak. And that's what Jesus offers you this morning. So to really bring this into conclusion, especially if you don't think too uh, much about this often or you don't think about the severity of it, I want to just give you a few things and then we'll pray. The first one, and the first reason why you have to take this seriously, is Jesus is who he says he is. The Pharisees didn't get a foothold on disproving him for who he is. Jesus is absolutely the Son of God from heaven, the only one who can save you from your sin. That is uh, absolutely true. The next one is this. Just like he redeemed the woman who was caught in adultery, he offers you redemption this morning. He offers you that chance to start over. But you must be willing to come to Christ this morning. And you must also realize that in God's kindness, through Christ, he hasn't withheld anything. The only reason that you will leave here this morning not forgiven and not set free from the bondage of sin, just like this woman, is because you are the one who is holding back from God. Whether it's holding on to your sin, your pride, your self-reliance, whatever it might be, look, it's all on your part if you leave here and you're not free. But then I also want to point to this. There is another day coming where we see Jesus as judge in the temple, 
but he will be judge again. And on that final day, nobody misses this appointment. John chapter 5 says that when his voice goes out, everybody hears him. All of those who have done good are to the resurrection of life, and all those who have done evil to the resurrection of death. Everybody stands before him in that tribunal. And the only way that you will stand before that judge and it will end the same way as the woman who's caught in adultery is if Jesus has taken the stone in your place. But if you refuse him this morning, you're left there all alone to take the stone all by yourself. And the Bible speaks of it in this way, that it's the second death where it's eternal punishment apart from the mercy and the grace of God forever. I want to point you to that verse one more time. John 3.17 Jesus did not come to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through Him. There's a lot to consider. There's a lot to weigh in your thoughts. If you're a Christian, you have every reason to leave here rejoicing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you are here this morning and your sin is ever before you and you know that you are not right with Him, please, I plead with you to consider Christ and not just for a moment, but in prayer so that you would know the matter of your soul is settled. Leave you with this. Jesus took the stone for you. Give your life to him. Would you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful for Jesus Christ. And just even the heaviness of knowing that the greatest need of every single person is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that many of the people here today can leave here and have a confidence that they are not condemned. They can have a confidence that they stand right with you because of Christ. And at the same time, God, I pray for anyone who doesn't have that confidence that they would truly weigh the eternal matters of their soul. That they would see that Jesus is full of compassion towards them. And that today is the day of salvation, God. And that you would do this work for their good, but also for the glory of your name. And lastly, too, I just pray that you would continue to cause us to think on the gospel, not just as something we hear when we get saved, but as the very thing we need for our entire Christian life. Lord, thank you so much. You've been so good towards us. And I pray that your name would be praised and glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.